Ever watched Die Hard and thought about what you would do in a hostage situation? Or wondered what's the worst that can happen at your job? I work in a tech company, but I used to work night shift at a gas station, and I would think about being robbed all the time. Sometimes I imagine I'm John Wick and defeat the robbers with my two years of Taekwondo training I took when I was seven. But most of the time, I thought about being shot over 30 bucks in a till in a pack of smokes. I can only imagine the dark thoughts going through law enforcement, construction workers, and firefighters who think about the worst case scenario at their job. But what about prison guards in high security prison? The place where society puts their most dangerous criminals. I can only imagine the horrors people think about what could go wrong at their job. Prison riots, they happen more than you think. In 1975, Mary Steinhauser was among 14 other hostages captured by violent inmates Dwight Lucas, Claire Wilson, and the ringleader, Andy Bruce. Steinhauser volunteered to be the primary hostage held at knife point by Bruce. After 41 hours, prison guards rushed into the room. Steinhauser died during the altercation shot by a prison guard. The official report said Bruce used her as a human shield. Others claimed a more horrific story. A guard heard yelling, killer, killer. Rumors then surfaced of a romantic bond between Steinhauser and Bruce. Here are the facts. By the end of the 1975 British Columbia Penitentiary hostage situation, Steinhauser died. She was the only one who died from the altercation. Today, we'll summarize the horrible event. It's time for another dreadful story of Vancouver's dark history. This is the tale of the courageous and tragic death of Mary Steinhauser. Vancouver Dreadfuls is a podcast about the dark, odd, and horrifying criminal history of Vancouver. Listener discretion is advised. Gruesome content detailed ahead. This is Vancouver Dreadfuls. Shards of glass from Jewish homes, hospitals, and schools cover the streets of Nazi Germany. Synagogues and Jewish businesses ransacked. 91 Jewish people died during the night of broken glass, a horrific prelude to the Holocaust. Jewish families looked to escape Nazi Germany. A nanny, Joanna Reisner, accompanied her employer's wife and two children to Canada. Shortly after arriving in Canada, Reisner met her husband, a sawmill worker named August Steinhauser, who immigrated to Canada in 1925. They married in 1941 and had two children, Mary and Margaret Steinhauser. Steinhauser was five years old when her parents bought a farm in Burton, British Columbia. Chores often included picking fruit off apple and cherry trees, milking cows, and caring for the workhorses. Her sister describes Steinhauser as a courageous and compassionate, often putting herself before others. As a teenager, she once saved a childhood friend from drowning when a swimming hole collapsed. Steinhauser jumped in, brought the unconscious body back to land and performed CPR to bring her back to life. School for Steinhauser took place in a two-room schoolhouse, allowing her to interact with children of different ages. Occasionally, the older children teased her about her weight, so she learned to box. She's a spirited fighter, and it showed during teacher lectures, occasionally thrown out of the classroom for speaking her mind. 
Her sister Margaret detailed some of these outbursts in class over the treatment of Indigenous people during the settlement of North America. Her passion for social justice and wanting to help people led her to be a psychiatric nurse and social worker. Below are the cliff notes of Mary Steinhauser's life leading up to her employment at British Columbia Penitentiary. She trained to be a psychiatric nurse at Essendale, now known as Riverview Hospital. Briefly moved to Toronto and worked at Queen Street Mental Health Hospital. Moved back to BC and worked in Kamloops for a few years at Tranquil School for the Mentally Handicapped. Worked as a psychiatric nurse at the Matsukuik Institution, a medium security prison in Abbotsford. While working at Matsukuik Institution, she took courses at Simon Fraser University for psychology and sociology. She graduated in 1971 with a BA honors in both fields. After graduating, she immediately went to graduate studies at the University of British Columbia for social work, getting her master's degree in May 1973. Became a prison classification officer until her death on June 11, 1975. Before we get into the hostage-taken incident inside of the BC Penitentiary, we still need to learn about her captors, Andy Bruce, Dwight Lucas, and Claire Wilson. Andy Bruce was born in 1949 to a large family in North Vancouver, one of 13 siblings raised by his mother after his father left the family when he was two years old. He attended St. Emmons Parish School in North Vancouver, a residential school. Survivor of physical and sexual abuse as a child, he never engaged in school, skipping to perform petty crimes such as theft and vandalism. He never graduated and was the only one of his 12 siblings who would get in trouble with the law. Bruce's criminal record began when he was 16. September 1965, convicted on two charges of assault, sent to prison for two years. November 1966, escaped from prison, stole a car and hid inside of a house, received an additional two years on top of his sentence when apprehended. He was on the run for less than a month. May 1969, released from prison. Upon his release, he fell back into a life of crime Addicted to heroin, he would often rob banks or run drugs for dealers to support his habit. In April 1970, less than a year since his release from prison, he took a job from a friend to kill a dancer. His payment for doing the job? An ounce of heroin. The dancer was an informant for law enforcement in the late 1960s, providing information about the local drug trade in Vancouver. Contract for the hit was set at $2,400, Bruce's friend took the job and subcontracted it to Bruce. News articles and a court document detailed Bruce's murder of the dancer. He entered her home and shot her in front of her daughter. Investigators theorized the reason he spared the child was because the gun jammed and the police were on their way. Bruce was back in the BC Penitentiary serving a life sentence. Ever seen that movie Bronson with Tom Hardy? His time in prison was kind of like that. Majority of his time was spent in solitary confinement, and when he wasn't, he was fighting with guards, inmates, and coming up with plots to escape. In August 1972, he found himself transferred to the Saskatchewan Penitentiary for his violations. Change of scenery didn't help Bruce. He attempted to escape the prison, stabbed an officer, and took one hostage. The stabbed officer received slash wounds on his hands, ankle, and abdomen. He was brought back to the BC Penitentiary shortly after the incident, 
only returning to Saskatchewan to face charges in 1974. Publications labeled Andy Bruce as one of the most dangerous men in BC during the 1970s for his actions. Some mentioned Bruce in prison as charismatic, which could be the reason why Lucas and Wilson followed him in 1975. Dwight Lucas was born in mid-1950s in Medicine Hat, Alberta. Adopted through the Manitoba Children's Society, he had a tough childhood like Bruce. At age of seven, a doctor prescribed heavy tranquilizers for Lucas because of his emotional and physical outbursts at home and school. Expelled from school at 10 years old, he moved to a boys' group home. His new living situation didn't improve his attitude. He repeatedly ran away, fought other boys, and even in one incident, stabbed one. 18 years old, Lucas was part of a revolving cycle of the Canadian Correctional Services. His history of assaults, breaking and entering, weren't severe enough to keep him in prison for long, but in 1974, the judge gave him a life sentence for his part in a brutal axe murder. A heartbreaking moment for the judge, a year earlier, he gave Lucas a lenient sentence believing he would change. Originally sent to Stony Mountain Institution in Manitoba, Lucas transferred to British Columbia Institution in a few short months. While placed in solitary confinement, he stabbed an officer with a broken broom handle. Claire Wilson was born in Campbell River during the early 1950s. School teachers classified Wilson as antisocial, dangerous, poorly controlled, and primitive emotional child. Educators kicked him out of school after grade eight. By 15, Wilson turned to drugs and crime to support himself. From 1965 to 1967, he had the following on his record. Assault, breaking and entering, possession of stolen property, violation of immigration laws, auto theft, trafficking narcotics, possession of heroin, forgery, possession of firearms. Wilson's time in the BC Penitentiary was spent in solitary confinement at his request. This would be an ongoing theme for his days in the penitentiary, going back and forth between general population and solitary confinement. He found it difficult to socialize with other inmates or perform work duties assigned to him adequately. Like Bruce and Lucas, Wilson briefly rejoined society, but found himself back in the correctional system in 1973 after being sentenced to 10 years in prison for drug trafficking. In 1974, he attacked officers escorting him to a courthouse in Nanaimo from the penitentiary. He escaped with two other inmates into a home of an elderly couple in Ladysmith, beating them unconscious. When arrested, he was tried for attempted murder and received three life sentences, one for each of the guards he attacked. Now that the characters are introduced, let's set the stage for Steinhauser's death. The British Columbia Penitentiary was a high-security prison. A strict day-to-day -day routine for the average inmate was 7 a.m., wake up, clean cell, shave, wash up, get breakfast from the kitchen and eat in the cell, 8 a.m., report for work, 11.30 a.m., leave work for lunch, bring lunch back to cell for count and lock up, 1 p.m., back to work, 3.30 p.m., collect dinner from kitchen return to cell for count and lockup. 6 p.m., leisure time. 11 p.m., final count. 
Bruce, Lucas, and Wilson weren't normal prisoners. Because of their violent history and physical outbursts against guards and inmates, the first two were sent to solitary confinement. Wilson requested to be separated from the general population. Their day-to-day -day lives are different. A solitary cell was 11 feet by 6.5 feet, three concrete walls, a steel door, and a 5-inch square window. It was one of those places that was freezing in the winter, boiling in the summer. Taps only had cold water. The bed was four inches of foam over a thin piece of plywood and cement. No frame. At night, officers dimmed the light to 25 watts, just enough to keep prisoners awake at night. Prisoners stayed in the hellish environment of solitary for 23 and a half hours a day, only given 30 minutes to walk through corridors of the prison for exercise. For entertainment, there was a radio with two stations, but the only thing they ever played was static. Mary Steinhauser believed this was inhumane. Fresh out of university after obtaining her master's of social work, she suggested several changes she believed would better the existence of inmates inside of the British Columbia Penitentiary. Some of them are inviting ministers, family, and friends to visit the inmates who are in solitary confinement. Group sessions with inmates served on a federal task force to end solitary confinement advocated for ending capital punishment, which was ended in 1976. Not everyone agreed with Steinhauser's suggestion or ideas, as they were liberal. Inside the penitentiary, a lot of the guards took her compassion as a sign of weakness, one of the prisoners can easily exploit. One of the prisoners Steinhauser frequently worked with, Andy Bruce. The prison never assigned Bruce to Steinhauser as a patient or responsibility, she did it in her own free time. This sparked rumors around the penitentiary of what her relationship with Bruce truly was. Either way, Bruce would abuse the trust Steinhauser had in him. This concludes part one of the Steinhauser story. In part two, we'll look at what happened the day of the riot and the aftermath of the tragic event. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this dreadful? The Vancouver Dreadfuls team needs your support to keep this going, and there are many ways to help out. Send your feedback and comments to VancouverDreadfuls at gmail.com. Follow our social media pages at Vancouver Dreadfuls Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram at Vancouver Dreadfuls, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channels at Vancouver Dreadfuls. Lastly, we're running a Kickstarter for season two. Please check it out if you want more dreadful tales. Today's episode has been hosted by Christopher Glant. Audio recorded and post-produced by Rodrigo Robinet. Social media is managed by Sandra Reaño. Animation and motion graphics by Nathan Moran. And art created by Nixon.